Stay hungry, stay foolish. More agility, more energy, more genius. Why do some companies always seem to have the best ideas, the most engaged people, and the most profitable growth? Based on 10 years of research, today's book goes behind the scenes of some of the world's most innovative companies and decodes the tools, hacks, and approaches that help their managers systematically spark ingenuity, agility, and profitable creativity at scale. It presents a pragmatic how-to guide for any team or organization that needs to adapt its culture, processes, leadership, and decision-making for an age of increasingly unpredictable and rapid change. We welcome author of Be Less Zombie, How Great Companies Create Dynamic Innovation, Fearless Leadership, and Passionate People. Elvin Turner, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Aidan. I'm really excited about our conversation today. It's great to have you on the show. You've done a great job with this book. It's beautifully illustrated as well. And we have two copies to give away. Just sign up at theinnovationshow.io. Sign up to the newsletter. And every week we give away books. We give away, for example, this week as well, a Hogan assessment worth €1,000. And a reminder that this show is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups. I wanted to open with a line from the book, Alvin, that I'm sure will resonate with so many of our listeners. You say in the book, innovation is an argument that most companies lose. Why? Because usually they are far too casual about it. Innovation demands change in the status quo, and typically, the greater the change, the bigger the argument. So when companies aren't deliberate enough about innovation, efforts evaporate quickly. Business as usual is too busy and too powerful to make room for upstart, inconvenient, unproven, resource-hungry ideas. It's a fight that is always rigged. The book is beautifully illustrated, as I said, by Richard Johnson, and there's a great image here of a sumo wrestler representing the status quo versus the innovation worker or the change maker as a frail, normal-sized guy. (laughs) But what came to mind when I was looking at that page was the movie Gladiator, And spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it, but at the very end, when the gladiator fights Caesar, he stabs him in the side before the fight, so the fight is rigged. (laughs) And that reminded me so much of how innovation is rigged in the favor of status quo. I really like that analogy. And that's how I see it in most organizations that I go and work with. There is this hunger for bolder ideas. Often the first conversation I have with an executive inside an organization is, listen, don't tell us why we need to innovate. Don't tell us what we need to innovate. Just tell us how. And it's not its not that they don't know how, because when you look around the organization, you'll find stacks of innovation going on, but it's generally incremental innovation that fits very neatly into the status quo, the, the operating system that's going to generate cash to get us to the next quarter. What it's not great at, what organizations find harder is creating an environment where bolder ideas, more disruptive ideas can show up. Because when they land on the meeting room table of the status quo, they're basically dead on arrival. So you have this rigged fight where you've got little ideas that could be huge, struggling for survival, struggling for oxygen, because there's no team, there's no resource, there's no way of measuring, there's no way of understanding this idea in its early stages. And that's why I wrote the book. It's to try and create this really pragmatic handbook 
to help organizations figure out how do we get this balance right between incremental innovation for today whilst discovering tomorrow? How can the two fit together and sit together without this bloodbath, which tends to happen inside most organizations? You say it very clearly in the book. The big sumo wrestler, the status quo, is really important because that's what funds the future. That's right. And I often find people inside organizations who might be classed as rebels and, you know, they're they're trying to turn things over and and are frustrated with the way that things work. And I always try and have a reality check conversation because while I admire their spirit and their determination to do the things that the organization needs more of, it should never be at the expense of what we're trying to get done today. It's about finding the right balance so that we're pursuing efficiency and effectiveness and great customer service and moving forward, testing smaller ideas to keep today moving and profitable so that we can show up in the future. And by the way, the money that we make today will fund those experiments for the future. So it is about getting the right balance. You tell us that in order to create those conditions where bold ideas can emerge and develop organizations need to focus on two foundational elements. One is strategic drivers and the other is an innovation framework. And you're so generous in the book. You give away this framework, you give step-by-step guides, you even give away templates on your website, belesszombie.com. Well, I really want people to succeed in this. So, you know, other people might want to hold on to all of their IP I'm quite happy to give some of this stuff away because, I mean, look at the world we're in right now. I mean, this is being recorded during COVID-19. And if there was ever a time where the world needed more innovation, it's right now. I didn't know COVID-19 was coming, but I guess my philosophy is the more that people have this stuff in their hands, the more likely that organizations are going to do better at innovation. And that's good for everybody. So, yeah, I mean, I, I put in the book, there are these two broad ideas on how to help innovation be more of an inevitability inside of an organization rather than than a fight. And that means primarily you have to be deliberate about it. And that's one of the, when I was doing the research for the book, one of the key insights that I had was the ones, the the companies that innovate really well and do it, do so over a long period of time are the ones that make the choice to do it. They don't expect it to show up by accident or, oh, we'll figure it out, we'll, we'll just you know, build it around the edges. No, they've, they've got a really deliberate innovation strategy and it falls into these two areas, as you said. One is strategic drivers, and that is they're totally aligned with corporate strategy. That, you know, innovation is informed by where we need to go you know, and how we're going to grow in the future. It's got a financial renewal metric built into it, so... And we think about the levels of growth that we need today and into the future, the innovation is directly plugged into the numbers. It looks at customer insight. So that's looking at what matters to customers. Well, look, looking in the past, looking at today, what can we extrapolate into the future so that we are definitely customer driven? And that's not just a buzzword. And we're also looking at future trends, what's coming from the future, what could change the way that customers want to create value and the way that we help them do that. And then also creating a portfolio of products and services around that, that is looking at innovation portfolio, that's looking at incremental stuff today, extension innovation that is perhaps looking into new markets or playing with emerging technology that is proving its worth, it's not entirely brand new. And then there's this experimental phase or category of innovation that most of it will fail. Some of it will come down the line and we're trying to find this right balance in the portfolio of all three. And then around all of that, you got the second part, which is this innovation framework. So what are the processes, the capabilities, the resources, the culture, and the leadership 
that we need that will allow that innovation performance state to show up. Because if we're not deliberate about it, the status quo will overpower because all of the metrics are in favor of delivering today better. And when you drop an uncertain idea into that world, the metrics don't make sense. We're trying to measure things that have no no value at all in a brand new idea, which we're trying to figure out whether it's even something that we should even be pursuing. So the more deliberate we are, the more likely it is that innovation is going to show up. And you know, I, I often talk about it being a difference between dating innovation and having a casual fling with it, kind of a campaign <laughs> approach every now and again or every year, or you might bring in an innovation director and, and often within 18 months they've been fired. Often it's because we have no deliberate approach for it. We're just dating it. And you need this kind of covenant, this marriage. This is not something that we're going to walk away from. If we want innovation to show up as an inevitability rather than a fight, we have to bake it into the system and put metrics in the system that force it to come forward. Yeah, and you said it there about the innovation, head of innovation, innovation director, whatever it might be labeled as. Lots of them listen to this show, and it's a dangerous role because you don't know what the company's actually really motivations are. And sometimes the innovation strategy is just hiring a head of innovation. That's it. Yeah, it's, oh, it, my goodness. Yeah. It's terrible, isn't it? And, and I'm really concerned about so many innovation workers in this period of COVID lockdown where there's going to be stress on the system, where whether we like it or not, we're going to enter into a recession of sorts. Whether it's going to be bigger than 2008, 2009, we don't know. But innovation struggles, usually during recessions. Certainly my experience is there's been two budgets that have been really hammered, which is one of the reasons why. So I put together a course to go with the book, and I've just decided to put it out there for free because the two budgets that I've seen getting hammered are, one, innovation budgets, and secondly, learning and development, professional development budgets, training budgets are being being slashed. And, and again, if there was ever a time where you wanted people to be getting better at doing innovation and then having budget to back it, it's right now. And I, I understand why it's happening, but it doesn't bode well in some respects for 12 months time where we're looking at a pipeline of innovation, which is empty. And we're going to have some frustrated executives, I think, looking at, you know, I talk in the book about opening the big idea cupboard and it's empty. Well, you had to be thinking about that 12 months ago. Yeah, and I, I often think about it like, you know, if you're going to run a marathon, you don't just go out there and do it. You have to build up skills. You have to build muscle over time. And you talk about that at length within the book about building capability. But I wanted to start with the often sink or swim issue for sustainable innovation and those head of innovations that we talked about. One of my first roles ever was a head of digital, and I was tasked with creating a digital strategy and the first thing I was like well what's the strategy because all digital is an enabler of that strategy and people were looking at me like I was making excuses and I didn't want to do the strategy <laughs> but it's exactly the problem isn't it there's usually no strategy within companies and you say here I love how you put it when an idea can't point to a meaningful strategic landing strip turbulence is inevitable yeah I mean I think one of the biggest reasons that innovation struggles inside organizations is, well, one, we're not being deliberate about it, but two, it's not really connected to something meaningful that, or is certainly is meaningful to the board. So there's this, you know, people say what gets measured is what gets done. Well, what gets measured is what's valued. And if we don't really value innovation enough to measure it, we should never expect it to show up. And that's, that's why I think it's so important that if 
where if innovation is going to show up and succeed, it has to be connected to something that the board cares about. And that really ought to be future strategy. But my experience is often I have the same thing as you, Aidan. I'll, I'll go into an organization and say, can we see the strategy so that we can build out an innovation strategy? And what I'm given is often really just a plan for the next 12 months. It's a very operational, very tactical plan, which of course you can work with, but it doesn't really give you enough around what's the real sense of competitive differentiation that you have, what's the trajectory of your market in terms of where customers are, are, are likely to want to be buying, what are the weak signals that we're sensing from the future around how that's going to change the way that we need to both show up in market and what we're going to take to market. Some of these questions, when you pose them in that setting, there's lots of embarrassed head scratching and um, avoiding gaze. But and And that's I, I I don't want to feel like you know <laughs> I know it all or anything here, but I feel like often um, that's that's the case because actually I don't think executives particularly enjoy strategy. Often they love you know they're often promoted on the basis of having done really well at managing something in the status quo, and when we're as a as a leader when we're confronted with the truth that our real value in the organisation is yeah we should be making sure today is happening but we need to be understanding where is the what, what's coming in the future and every time we choose to step into fiddling around with the day-to-day -day and the operational stuff which is our comfort zone we're robbing from the future and that's for me that's not great stewardship the role of a leader should be to lead to see to calibrate an organization that can both run today and explore tomorrow and there is a comfort zone which is deeply rooted in today which i understand at a human level but I think if if executives are given more of a, an incentive to let go of today, just like Jeff Bezos, you know, he claims to spend three days a week with unstructured time, looking at the future, thinking about strategy, talking to some of the edgier customers, and figuring out what tomorrow needs to look like, and asking those questions: what, what you know, what do we, what questions does tomorrow need us to answer today, rather than being really focused on. How do we just make today a little bit faster and better? Both matter, but I would argue, well, certainly my experience in working in organizations that do this well, the leadership team has, has completely given the running of today to the next layer down. They've built a trust relationship there through capability and character. You know, There's a real sense of trust, which frees them up then to do the job that they're there to do. And I think this is a fundamental uh, Achilles heel inside organizations who are trying to do more innovation everyone's just too busy which is so focused on today you talk about this with an example of a ceo you were mentioning you were in a workshop one day and one of the new up-and-comer kind of high potentials within the organization says his biggest frustration was not being able to work on the future and the ceo shouts out that she was so disappointed herself because she has no time she's like what the hell do you think i'm doing i i want to do that innovation stuff and you're there scratching your head in the corner with your head in your hands saying to yourself if the leader doesn't have any time for innovation what hope does the organization stand and this is the huge problem because i know some ceos will be reaching to stop this interview if they're listening to it now because they're frustrated as hell but mm. it needs to start with the leadership and that oftentimes means influencing the board to go look we need to absolutely change the structure here you know alex osterwalder i know you're you also read alex's work he was talking about this a couple of weeks yeah. ago on the show is that 
some of the best organizations have two CEOs, a co-CEO role, one with mm. their eyes on the future and one with their eyes on the present. And that's not feasible in many companies. But what's your advice to those CEOs who are listening, who need to influence the board? How do they even, how do they even articulate that? I think it starts with a proper conversation about strategy. Who do we need to become and why will we be different? You know, why us, why now, but also why us in the future? Let's not fall into that complacent trap that just because it's working today, it's inevitable that it will continue to work tomorrow. Look at any industry and you can see, even if it's a slow moving industry, disruption is nibbling around the heels of, of, of everybody. Um, so having a well-facilitated, challenging conversation about what do we believe the future really holds for us and therefore what needs to be true in order for us to show up in a healthy state in that future, the best that we can, it starts to unlock a conversation around exploration and the need for exploration because there's never been a harder time in history to predict what comes next. You know, in the past, when I first started out, I'd often sit in board meetings and you'd hear, you know, what's the plan for next year? Well, this year plus 5%. And you could more or less guarantee that that would show up. Absolutely not these days. In, in well, fewer and fewer cases can you do that. And your ability to predict the future is becoming, I would say, weaker and, and it's more difficult. The other thing I, I think is that we often fall into the trap of the same group of people trying to figure out answers to questions about the future. And we're not necessarily qualified or have the experience because we're trading on old skill sets. So I talk in the book about the half-life of an executive's experience and capabilities. The things that made you great at running the status quo are not going to be the same skill sets required for designing digital business models and running areas inside your business that do require a much higher percentage in, in terms of work of, of exploration. They're, they're very different skill sets. So first of all, I, I would set it up around you know, who do we need to become? What What is the future really likely to pan out? Uh, you know, but also bring in people who are experts as far as you can be in the future in technology so that you can start. Because one of the things that I've, I've experienced, and you may have done it, Aidan, in your role as well, is when you start to talk about things particularly like technology, often the level of understanding at a board level is really just a buzzword with a sentence behind it. So AI, you know, IoT. Yeah, we kind of roughly know what it means, but what does it really mean to our business model if we start to apply a sensor to some part of our product that then allows a new revenue stream, which means we can let go of another product? You know, that that knock-on effect of deeply understanding and interpreting what technology could mean for the future of our organization, both in what we take to market, but also how we go to market, it's really, I don't think there's a level of understanding there that's enough where you can have the proper conversation. So bringing in people to help the penny drop that actually we have got much less certainty about what the future looks like than we think we know. Therefore, we must do something. It, it is about, in some, respect, in some respects, trying to create some form of burning platform, which typically doesn't exist for innovation unless you're in the, you know, the jaws of a, of, a, of, a, of a big fight already. I think you're so right about the educational part of it, because the cycles of innovation driven by those technological changes, those drivers of change are so violent now, they're so accelerated by exponential change, that
that by the time you learn something, it's over. Like the half-life of those skills you're talking about, it's getting faster and faster. So the disruption is getting faster and faster. So having that dissenting voice or that person who's a gainsayer within your organization, you need more than one. You need more than an Elvin Turner in there as well. You need, as the concept of the book is, make everybody less zombie so they're not focused totally on the present. So one of the, the, the big areas that I would encourage an organization to start with if they're going you know, they're wanting to turn on a high level of innovation performance is really start at the capability level. And that, that can be at an executive level. And I think that that is important. Although I often find there is often a reluctance amongst executives to, to go on training courses, often because they've had so many bad experiences in the past. And often they can feel like, well, one, feel like, yeah, well, I kind of know this stuff. I've been on the innovation half day of my executive offsite that was a week long when we talked about innovation. And you know, realistically, that's not enough to know how to run uh, a context where more of this stuff shows up, that you, it really needs to go deeper than that. You wouldn't send off your FD on a half day finance course and expect them to run the finance department, <laughs> but we kind of think it's, it's okay to do that with innovation. But what I found that certainly at every other level of the organization, teaching people one thing really starts to democratize the whole thing. And that is the concept of experimentation. So taking an idea, deeply understanding the assumptions that we believe would need to be true in order for that idea to work, testing those assumptions with small experiments, often called minimum viable products, um, and then learning forward because it massively lowers the stakes of innovation, which makes it easier to sponsor for a leader. So rather than, so I did some work with one of the big drinks companies, it's, it's in the book with Pernod Ricard, and their CEO in the UK made the flip after we'd rolled this out for them, which was talking to his people and saying, listen, don't bring me ideas anymore, bring me experiments where you've already been through two or three cycles of testing and what you're bringing me is a data trend. You're showing me that this looks as if it's on a trajectory where it could succeed. Can I now have some more resource to go forward? So you're starting with these tiny experiments and you're learning your way forward. You're unlocking more resource on a pay-as-you-go model rather than, you know, when I remember we were doing the, the training for the executive team around um, some of these ideas and the, the marketing director was at the back of the room. I genuinely thought he'd fallen asleep. And suddenly he sort of snort, snorted to attention. He said, so Elvin, what you're really saying is instead of spending 50K building a prototype, we should be spending 50 quid testing an assumption. I thought, actually, that's a really nice way to articulate it. It's that, you know, dream big, start small, learn fast. I mean, I've certainly seen you can you can do training till you know the cows come home. But when you give people a tool like that that they can go away and play with and see it work, and then the stakes of failure are much lower, it really increases an appetite all round to step into that tough, sticky world of failure, which is inevitable when we're pursuing ideas that we're we're playing with for the first time. There's a great tip you give in the book, and this makes absolute sense. You make it part of the compensation package because no matter how much you want people to reinvent the future, sometimes they don't care. Sometimes they're not driven by a central vision that unites them together. And you point out innovation strategy ultimately must deliver more money somehow, somewhere, sometime soon. If it doesn't, the status quo will quickly discredit and overrun it. And this happens all the time in innovation 
efforts. And I love how the company 3M, the creators of the post-it notes, interweaves innovation into the day job by insisting 30% of each division's sales must come from products less than four years old. So therefore, they're on the hook for innovation. I love that idea. I've seen it done in other companies where the calibration isn't quite right. And it's something like 10% of revenues come from products that didn't exist 12 months ago. You think, actually, that's not too difficult to achieve through incremental innovation. But if you think about the calibration that your organization needs, that demands revenues to come maybe from two or three years ago, that in turn demands new products and services to come forward, it starts to help you create one, a financial hook, as you say, to pull the rest of the organization behind it. The innovation state required to deliver that means we need to think differently about processing, processes and resources and all those, all those good things. But it also puts a really healthy understanding around the organization that what we do today is not necessarily going to get us to the future. Innovation has to be a mindset. It has to be something that we pursue so that when we stop doing it, we notice. Whereas today, it's the opposite. It's we have to try hard and it's a fight to make it happen. If you put a strong financial incentive for the organization and then also align individual incentives behind it, although that's a hot potato, it depends on how that's done, it creates incentives that people do respond to. Now, the case that I was talking about just now, Pono Ricard, they did this. They put in some individual financial incentives for people to deliver some level of innovation in their job. And Part of me was thinking, it'd be much better if that was an intrinsic motivation, but actually it worked really well because it got people started. Well, I'm going to have to do this. I better try this experimentation stuff. And once they tried it, they realized that it worked. And then the intrinsic motivation kicked in because they loved the process of exploring new ideas at very low risk. So I know that the jury's out. You can ask other people about whether you should give financial incentives for innovation. But I think if you're careful about it and considered about it, you can make it work in certain circumstances. And I love that, man, about that Bruno Ricard approach, because no matter how wise everyone is, no matter how futurist you are and studying the future, we really have no idea how things are going to turn out. And we did a show a few years ago with Rasmus Ankerson, and his book was called The Goldmine Effect. And the reason I had him on, he was talking about how him and a team from their national team, their national soccer team, overlooked their best players. Because when they looked at them in the academy, they could not see how they could become somebody. And you hear these stories all the time in sport. It's the exact same in innovation. So you need to spread your bets, as you say. And that's the key to getting it into the mindset. Because really, you could have created an absolute gem of a product and you could kill it prematurely. Yeah, and, and often... The ideas that go on to be something that are, you know, the superstar products, we don't know even at the beginning whether we're even answering the right question. And that's hard for a manager to sign off on an exploration of because often the resources are so tied to today. There's no time to look at that. There's no time to or, or motivation really to explore those, you know, it's, it's almost like it's it's a flame that's just flickering and it's very easy to snuff it out. Um, and often they need snuffing out. You know, we look at Google X, they, Astro Tello quite openly talks about the 99% failure rate that they have, but they've made that choice to become really great at, at proving that all of their ideas are wrong as quickly as possible 
and then if they accidentally seem to stumble across something that is um, could could lead to something, then great. But they're recalibrating resources all the time away from the things that they know aren't going to work as quickly as possible towards the things that may work. So it's actually a really smart strategy, but it feels counterintuitive to an organization that perhaps hasn't done much of this before. Keep with that idea of spreading your bets. One question that always comes to mind, you get asked it all the time, is how much effort should we give to innovation? And you tell us most organizations have a one-size-fits-all approach to managing innovation, which is a car crash waiting to happen. And you remind us of the useful metaphor to consider alongside the 10-20-70 split, which is tank, pond, or ocean. That's an idea that I got from a guy called Mark Bjornsgaard, who I was in a workshop one day and he just threw that up on the screen and I thought, that is genius. So the idea is that you start in the tank, a fish tank, and in the fish tank, there's not very much that can really go wrong. It's a very small scale experiment. You know, if the fish dies, it's not the end of the world. But if something works, and this can be in a small team, it could be a small customer cohort, you're trying something small where the stakes are really low. But if the data shows that this, you're kind of onto something, then you then you grow the experiment. You move into the pond and then likewise out into the ocean, which is the scale. But it's not starting in the ocean. It's dropping a tiny rowing boat into the ocean. It's going to get smashed to pieces because it wasn't built with the right outcome in mind. Uh, or the right context in mind. So you're starting in the tank, learning into the pond, and then scaling into the ocean is is the idea. But I just find, in, in, in certainly in a workshop setting, people really resonate with that idea from Mark Bjornsgaard. You give loads of exercises throughout the book and questions to ponder as teams or even as an innovation leader. And you share an exercise that you strongly recommend that leaders run with their teams to start identifying the right balance of innovation. I'd love if you shared this with our audience. Yeah, so... I think often we're walking around with lots of unspoken assumptions in our head about innovation. And I think it's good just to get them out on the table. And so asking a leader, and again, if you're working at a leadership level or, or any other level, asking the, the people in the room to write down on three different pieces of paper, how much resource do you think we currently spend on three areas of innovation, which I call enhance, which is just incremental innovation, extend which is more focused on growth initiatives its ideas we've been working on for a while and they seem to be showing promise and explore which is you know the stuff that's really out there most of which will fail and without talking to anybody else you write them down on three pieces of paper and then you go around the room and you share and it's usually very interesting to see what people think the different split is because it starts to expose how people define levels of disruption around innovation because for one person Doing something that's just a little stretch beyond what we're doing today feels really risky based on their past experience. And they would put that into an, an explore category, whereas for somebody else, that's not risk at all. So it, it puts out on the table kind of a shared set of assumptions that then allows you to have another, the next level of conversation, which is, well, okay, we must be somewhere in the middle here. You have a conversation about what, what's the truth. But then asking that question, the second question, which is, well, what does that mean? If we say, for argument's sake, we're spending you know, 90% in enhance, which is often what's going on, say 7 or 8% in extend, and then 1% at best in explore, which is a, you know, a real picture in many cases, what does that mean on how we're going to show up in the future? At what point do we run out of ideas? If suddenly something comes in from the side or we're seeing a trend already that could knock us off, off pace, how quickly could we recover? 
So it's really a reality check. The first one is how much innovation currently shows up. Is it the right kind of innovation? The second question is, and what does that mean? And then the third question, which you can then set up is, so therefore, what should we change? What do we do? What do we need to be thinking about differently so that we can strategically resource the kinds of innovation that we are now realizing that we need more of? Now, it's a very unsophisticated tool, but I would say at the very beginning of, of trying to bring a senior group of, of leaders on board, they've never had this conversation before. And it's an easy, fairly lighthearted way in, certainly at the beginning when people are sharing their post-it notes, to get serious about what needs to come next. So I, I've just used it before many times and just getting the assumptions out on the table is often the first part of having what needs to be a really open and transparent conversation. And even agreeing what innovation means because it means different things to different people. It's it's a oh, real yeah. clangor in many cases. Absolutely, yeah. I, I try to start any piece of work with that in mind. I mean, my, my own view on it is that innovation is the pursuit of profitable relevance and if we're not relevant today and in the future then why are we bothering and often what we do today if it's, if it's not if it's not going to be the thing that gets us to the future there is a there is a journey of relevance that we need to pursue so if innovation isn't pursuing relevance in you know efficiency or effectiveness or future value creation then you know it's open to question but definitely you know if you've got I, I often ask people at the beginning of like a training workshop to write down the definition of innovation and then we read three or four of them out and you start to get the idea actually there's 20 different definitions in the room <laughs> so um you know it's good to and i don't really care too much about what people decide on i'm not you know there are so many good definitions but let's just pick one and understand that that's what we all are going to try and pursue now yeah and it's really important apart from the leader of a business for the innovation worker for the listener of this show who's working in a big organization to get that assumptions mm. on the table because oftentimes they're working to the assumption that the other person understands what they're talking about and it's that communication of innovation which is actually sometimes flawed that we don't we're not speaking the same language and that's absolutely core and they'll tolerate you but ultimately they'll, they'll kill your ideas but i wanted to jump to something because i think this is um and i, and I have to say at the risk of this sounding like a moan fest <laughs> kind of going yeah that happened me that happened me um, <laughs> but but it can be very lonely working in innovation i get emails all the time Elvin, from people and they're kind of going thank god i'm not alone when they hear great speakers and writers and authors and practitioners like yourself and then they go it's not just me and that that's really important from a mental health perspective i think for innovation work because it, it can be really lonely but many of our listeners could be this person or could have had this person assigned to their team or to to them. They may be the only person in the team. And this is what you call a halfway house person, someone who is interested in innovation, perhaps is on secondment. And the result here will always be as the word secondment represents, which is second, and it will mean second place. It will always be second place in their mind. And sometimes that person, the secondee, will always be thinking about what their primary concern is. And uh, you and I have seen this in this instances where secondees are finance people seconded to ensure explorers don't get carried away or don't waste money, or can even be people within the organization that they don't know where quite to place them yet. So they put them in your team and they may not even be interested in innovation. It's so frustrating for so many people out there. Absolutely. And it's interesting that the point about finance people, I, I try and encourage inside organizations um, 
that the finance department becomes a key um, supporter in the design of business models. So the, the reason for saying that is quite often I, I meet with executives who are quite frustrated that a lot of the ideas that are brought to them have been brought without what appears to be any ounce of common sense around how the business is run. They just don't understand the numbers. Well, you know, what are they thinking of? Don't they understand that? Da, 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 da. And you think, well, how, how often are you telling these people how you know, the business actually runs and what the numbers are? And anyway, all, put that to one side. There is often a commercial competence gap when you're asking people to step into innovation, um, particularly if it's in a, in a sphere that they haven't necessarily worked in before, but for whatever reason, they found themselves on an innovation team or they're on a talent development program and they've got to run a project, whatever the circumstance is, often, rather than being um, the damp squib of the organization, the finance person can suddenly be a really strategically helpful person to come alongside and say, okay, so here are your assumptions. Um, here's where you think it needs to go next. Let's talk around some numbers of what would need to be true to make this work. And actually, they become a strategic partner rather than a blocker. And, you know, th th there needs to be some calibration done up front so that, you know, we're, we're both aiming for the same objective. But actually, that executive frustration can be overcome by partnering more commercial financial people with the people who have got, you know, the great idea, but they perhaps don't necessarily have the deep understanding of what the numbers are today um, that are required to create a business case that allows um, an executive to sign something off. That said, as we've been saying all along, the metrics for a, a bolder idea at an early stage are not the ones that you would normally expect to show up in a business plan because it's just too early. You know, you're looking for traction of uh, an appetite from users to actually use this thing before, you know, making money. And, and often we're in too much of a rush to see the dollar bills um, and we kill things because the money's not showing up yet and it was just getting going. And it's a delicate balance, but I think finance people have the potential to become some of the, the superheroes in innovation in, in terms of bridging that gap between executive frustration and you know some perhaps some of the the inexperience or naivety at a commercial level of other people inside the organization you know it's one of the goals of the show is it's not just for innovators to collaborate on it's actually to educate and and that's why i think having people like you saying that is so important so a finance per person hears that because i've had this experience where they want profitability based on the exploit business so based on the business today they try and square peg the innovation that you have no right. idea when it's going to be profitable into the business as it is today and it breaks it and one of the great things i learned on one of the shows was when you do create a product and it could be a product by mistake you know i often think of the 3m the glue that was a mistake and there was like what what the heck can i use this for right. but sometimes you create solutions but you don't quite know what yeah. the problem is yet you don't know where to sell them as a to solve a problem but i thought about this last week i was writing a, an article and it was a team a university team in bristol and they discovered that this species of ant called a rock ant leaves what's called a negative trail to go look i've explored down this alleyway already there's nothing here to save the energy of the colony ah. i loved it as an analogy because i thought about when a team, for example, so say you were working in a big organization, a big crystallized large organization, and you have done that, you've actually gone and put a lot of effort into something, but there's some type of repository for you to go 
I've explored this, I've done a hell of a lot of work. And then it's left in some type of innovation library, because sometimes the organization mightn't be ready for it yet, but they can pull it out of the library in time in the future and save that energy. Because I thought it was, it, it's a great way to think about mm. collaborative innovation within an organization, because oftentimes, because you're, you mentioned like the innovation worker will be fired in 18 months or else they'll just leave out of frustration but they'll have done a hell of a lot of exploratory work and that's often just totally discarded oftentimes when an innovation worker is fired or leaves an organization everybody speaks ill of them anyway and kind of go oh should they were all over the shop but it's actually the culture that's ultimately at fault I, i'm using this as a segue to get into culture and get, get into how we can create the environment to both make that innovation worker want to stay, but also bring everyone else on the journey with them. In the book, there is a section on culture. You know, I talk about creating a next level creative culture and how you do that in a really pragmatic way. But the reality is culture is so dynamically related to strategy and how we resource and what processes are at stake and, and how we measure everything ultimately affects it. It's this two-way relationship because at the end of the day, you know, in the workplace it's a bunch of people trying to get stuff done and what we're trying to do is to create an environment where people feel safe and motivated to do their best work whether that's churning out more of today and it's all known or it's moving to a more exploratory space but we're still doing that in a very high performing way we're not allowing things like a culture of fear or risk or anything else where the stakes feel too high to limit the creative pursuit of organizations it, it, it kind of always makes me laugh a little bit when you see every year there'll be the you know the, the, the C, top thousand ceos in the world have been surveyed and what matters most guaranteed in the top three there will be something either innovation or creativity will, will show up there somewhere and yet when you really look inside organizations to see okay where are ceos putting their money where their mouth is around these issues it really doesn't show up and so if we're not deliberate about the processes and everything else um, around innovation, we shouldn't really expect the culture to be able to tolerate the pursuit of greater idea, you know, bigger, bolder ideas, because, you know, what, what, what's the incentive? And I think, you know, I talk in the book about this, as you said earlier, the one size fits all approach to innovation and, and to culture. And left to its own devi devices, culture always follows the path of least resistance. I'm going to do the things that help me achieve the goals that I'm being set here. And if my boss is saying, well, we need bigger ideas, but actually my quarterly results demand that I just do more of today better and faster, otherwise I don't get my bonus, guess which one I'm going to choose? So if we're going to set up a culture where people do genuinely feel safe to do the work that we're asking them to do, we need to make sure that the rest of the organization is calibrated to support that culture. And that does mean often, you know, the biggest pushback I get from people when I ask you know, what stops you from doing innovation in this place? It's time. I'm already running at 120%. I'd love to put my hand up and suggest this, this breakthrough idea, but I know that if my boss says yes to it, I've just got myself an evening job. So when the kids are in bed, then I start to do the, the innovation. And who does their best work at that time of night when you're already exhausted? So, you know, we, we start to create this this culture that really isn't telling the truth. It's not really dealing in reality on what needs to be true for human beings to show up and do their best work. 
And we kind of had this, I still think, really, we, we had this sort of macho approach. It's, come on, just push through. Come on, we're going to workshop at four in the afternoon on Friday and we're going to come up with some genius. <laughs> like, just get real. And I know an organization that does this and they've got a good reputation for innovation. But when you look behind the scenes and see what they're really doing, it's 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 PR. They're not really doing anything that's moving the needle. And it would be interesting to see where they are in five years. But there is this sort of macho culture. Just get through it. Push through. You know, I, you know, long hours, heroes and all this stuff. The reality is human beings are able to deliver creative results based on factors like how stressed am I? Anxiety, massive. It's all proven. It's all in the science. We know that if we're stressed, we're anxious, we're less likely to come up with ideas that go beyond the status quo. Um, and there's a whole section in the book around, you know, I nearly called, I had a little bit of a crisis of confidence around the title halfway through and I, I rang the publisher and I said, oh, we can't call it Be Less Zombie. It's um, people are not going to want to self-identify with being a zombie, even if they kind of recognize some of the signs in their own company that it's going to be hard maybe we should call it be more human because that's actually what it's about how do we switch on the humanity required for innovation really to show up at scale of course it's more than that but um the the one of the interesting anagrams that that shows up in the title be less zombie if you rearrange the letters is blob seizes me and <laughs> that's kind of, kind of what it feels like sometimes i'm being asked to do this other stuff but the reality is the culture around here has got me in its grips um, because the status quo rules. So it, it's a delicate balance, but it, it does really start with a, a determination to be deliberate around who do we need to become? What's the innovation portfolio we need behind that? Therefore, what state do people need to be able to operate in so that they can do their best work? And often, you know, loads of it has been written around this, and you'll know this, this stuff as well. It's about creating a, a culture of safety. The stakes are low enough for me to take the first step towards something that may fail and that's okay it's a big topic but i again time and time again i see organizations not being deliberate about the creation of a culture where great ideas really can show up and develop i love this idea you talk about earlier on about calibrating finance to innovation and here you're talking about calibrating culture to outcome mm. so it's actually creating, as you say, those opportunities for conversations, casual conversations. Oh, did you see this happen? Did you see that happen? Mm. And, and where people will actually come up with ideas and get to know each other and get out of their silos. But there was a concept I loved, and I, I thought we'd share this one, is the performance space versus the rehearsal space, mm. because you don't go straight into that marathon. You have to practice first. This kind of showed up during the research by accident. I was I got talking to a lady who is a performance coach on the TV show X Factor. And she, uh, you know, during the, the show, you have the artists and they do their first verse and the chorus, second verse and chorus. And then the curtains open and there's this huge choir behind and, you know, everything comes to a crescendo. But this lady, she, lady called Emily Bollen, she runs the choirs. She, she leads choirs. And she was talking to me about, I was telling her about the book actually. And she was, um, she was, you know, interested in this idea of where you're allowed to fail. And she said, well, this is how it works for us. You have the performance space, which is you're on stage, the camera is running, you're on live TV, you cannot screw up. You have to hit every note. Everyone needs to sway in time. You know, everything needs to be perfect. And that's like the operations of the status quo. You really shouldn't be making too many mistakes because cause and effect is relatively well understood and has been for many years. Um, 
you know, you might get 1% margin of things where mistakes show up. But actually, that's the performance space. We should be nailing that. The rehearsal space, though, is where you're trying out new stuff. And the environment is very different. Everybody is relaxed. We understand that we are in a space where things probably are going to go wrong. And that's okay, because that's the job, is that we have, uh, we're letting our guard down, we're being more vulnerable, and we're trying things out that probably will fail, but some are in there, we'll find something that's great. And so I, I just like that metaphor of, do you have enough rehearsal space? Or are you just one big recording studio where nothing can go wrong? Um, so one of the things I encourage in the book is for people to, at the beginning of any project, or journey that they're about to go on is to say, okay, if we're going to deliver the outcome that this project requires, there's a lot here that we don't yet understand. So what's the balance between performance space and rehearsal space here? And what, what do we mean by rehearsal space? Let's design the ways of working that are going to be most beneficial and, and create most likelihood that the outcome, the journey we're going to go on is going to succeed. And Spotify, I think, are a great example of this. At the beginning of any project, they have their squad, their team, and they all sit down and they kind of design the culture that they believe they're going to need based on the outcome that they've got to achieve. And they have very frank conversations about how we're going to show up for one another what behaviors are going to be important, what's going to be need to be true in order for us to behave in those ways. And it's a very human conversation. And that's what people want at the end of the day is more of that rather than being in a sausage machine, just keeping your head down and delivering the stuff, even though we all know there are huge elephants walking around us that no one can point to and emperors with you know, no clothes on walking around. It's, <laughs> it's a much more human, honest, open conversation. And one of the, the, the related ideas in the book that I talk about is this, this connection between the vulnerability of individuals and the vulnerability of the organization. If I don't feel safe putting a big idea on the table, or if I don't feel safe to be starting to develop that idea, then you can rest assured that there is going to be a famine of big ideas or bolder ideas showing up in the future. So the future prosperity of the organization is somewhat you know, the vulnerability of the future commercial viability of the, of the company is somewhat connected to individual sense of vulnerability to better put new stuff on the table. So, yeah, I mean, the whole rehearsal space thing, I think it's just a lovely analogy for people just to lock onto and say, what does that mean for us? Let's design our own rehearsal space for the next 90 days on this thing we've got to do. What might that look like? It's a really good human conversation to have. Elvin, I think that's a, a beautiful way to finish it, the idea of creating a culture and a rehearsal space for innovation to happen. Where can people find out more about you, your workshops, the book, etc.? The best place really is to come to elvinturner.com. There's hooks from there out to lots of other places. So that's the best place to land. And just a reminder that you can win both a copy of the hard copy and a soft copy of Be Less Zombie by signing up to the Innovation Show newsletter, theinnovationshow.io, or I'll be putting it out on LinkedIn this week. And a thanks to our sponsors, Microsoft for Startups, and to our guest today, Elvin Turner, author of Be Less Zombie, How Great Companies Create Dynamic Innovation, Fearless Leadership, and Passionate People. Thank you for joining us. Great. Thanks ever so much, Aidan, for having me on. 